Well, good morning. I am back in the pulpit this week as we're going to finish up 2 Timothy chapter 2. And as usual, I have about three sermons worth of content that we're going to try to walk through here this morning. I, um, the media situation is the same as last week. Uh, it didn't happen. I do have uh, the outline and some scriptures that you can follow along. If you have the Version app, if you're at home, uh, you can access that on your phone, tablet, computer. Um, you can walk through the slides. So I encourage you, if you're here with us, to just open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2, because we're really just going to be walking through the text um, pretty much verse by verse and sometimes phrase by phrase. And so last week, uh, what we saw with Paul encouraging Timothy, he says, stand strong, Timothy, stand strong in grace. And then we talked about how the mindset that Timothy needs to have as a leader, as a preacher, as a pastor, was to stay resolute in God's mission. And then ultimately, we looked at the last few verses, uh, verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2, where we ultimately have to trust in God's faithfulness. So today we come to verse 14, and in verse 14, there's a transition as to how Timothy needs to lead the church. What I want to remind us is we're kind of zooming back a little bit and taking the big picture view, so and talking about the advancement of the gospel. And so in the first half of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is really working on encouraging Timothy, and what we can glean from that is how uh, we need to do the same as Timothy, to stand in grace, to have a resolute mindset, to uh, trust in God's faithfulness. And so when we participate, or when we do those things, we participate with God in the advancement of the gospel. So this morning I want to frame the second half of the chapter in the same sense of advancing the gospel. And what we see is Paul starts to talk to Timothy about how he needs to lead the church and address the leaders. And what I think is important for us to realize before we get in here is that the church is often the vehicle for the gospel. And so if the church isn't healthy, that means the gospel is being hindered. So yes, we are individuals, and yes, we are called to share the gospel, advance the gospel, but often this comes through the leadership and the teaching of the church. And that's why it's paramount that the church gets the gospel right. And so we're going to walk through the rest of the chapter this morning um, asking or answering the question, simply, what makes a healthy church? What makes a healthy church so that the gospel can advance? So that, will you just join me with a brief moment of prayer? Dear Lord, I pray that your word would be clear this morning, that your truth would uh, pierce our hearts, that your spirit would convict us, would encourage us, that we would be comforted by your grace, but challenged as well. Lord, I pray that you would just guide our time together, that we would respond with a heart of worship as we walk through your word together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 14. I'm going to read 14 through 18. It's going to make us make up our first mark of a healthy church. Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So as we consider three marks of a healthy church this morning, the first one is simply this. The healthy church is marked by faithful leaders. A healthy church is marked by faithful leaders. Paul starts out and he says, remind them of these things. Well, who's the them? If you were to look up at verse 2 of this same chapter, Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The them that Paul is referring to is simply Timothy as he gathers men who are able to teach and continue to bring the gospel to the next generation. The other, the church, as Timothy soon will be going to Rome, or that's Paul's hope, he knows that we're going to have to continue to advance the gospel and this is going to happen through faithful leaders. So Paul tells Timothy to remind them. This word remind, it's a continual sense. So it's continually remind them, Timothy, of these things. Well, what are these things? I think simply, most immediately, they're what's contained in verses 11 through 13. The faithfulness of God through the gospel. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Timothy, remind the leaders of this truth that God will accomplish his work, that we are founded in Christ. So more broadly speaking, he's speaking of the timeless truths, the message of the gospel that Paul received from Christ has now passed on to Timothy and he's saying, you need to entrust this same message to other faithful leaders. So as we continue to work through just this section, we see that faithful leaders are committed to two things. Number one, they have a commitment to keep the word of God central. If you're going to preach the gospel, you need to keep the word of God central. He says, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. In the church today, it's very much like the church then, there seems to be a tendency to get distracted with all kinds of things at church. But a healthy church will keep the word of God central in all that it does. Sometimes these distractions can even be good things. Parking lots, building programs, social outreach programs, good music, technology. These can be good things. But if these things begin to distract or take our focus off of the word of God, now we have a problem. And so we have to be weary of good things even getting in the way of the message of the gospel. But what Paul focuses on here in verse 14 is something that's quite negative. He calls it unnecessary quarreling about words. And he says that doesn't do any good. It actually harms the people who hear it. We have to be careful how we, how we interpret this passage, quarrel about words or this phrase, because words are important. 
To be sure, Paul is not saying that the precise words of Scripture don't matter. He's not saying that we shouldn't grow in our knowledge of Scripture and doctrine. But what seems to be in view is people in the church who love to argue, who love to debate, who really like to just start an argument about anything, but especially concepts that really have no bearing on the gospel or the church at all, other than to stir up controversy and strife. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, false teachers do little more than quibble over terminology. They indulge in pseudo-intellectual theorizing rather than in the productive study and submission to God's word. This is what Paul's talking about. This pseudo-intellectual, I can debate you and you can debate and we just go in circles. But what Paul says, this gets dangerous because what we start to find is that it's going to lead the hearers, everyone who's affected by all this internal debate and arguing over theological minutia, it leads the hearers to ruin. In this word, in the Greek, you would recognize it's kata. Uh, the first part is kata and the end is strophe. Put it together in catastrophe. It leads them to catastrophe. And as we see in a moment, sometimes confrontation and debate over truth is absolutely necessary. But what Paul's warning about is getting sucked into this needly, needless debates. They damage, they distract from the gospel. And what happens, the result is catastrophe. We realize how seriously Paul takes this because this same word is used uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as well in 1 Peter to describe the destruction that God brings down on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. And so what Paul is alluding to in the word choice here most likely is that, listen, as these people get involved in these endless, needless disputes, they are leading their people into catastrophic destruction. Faithful leaders have a commitment to keep the word of God central. Not allow distractions to come in. But they also have a commitment to teach the word of God faithfully. Look back with me at verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So they have a commitment to keep the word of God central and a commitment to teach the word of God faithfully. The picture that Paul's painting in this verse is one of maybe like a student or an apprentice learning a craft. You're to do your best to make every effort so that when you present your work to the master or the teacher, you would gain his approval. And the work that Paul has in mind here is Timothy's work in teaching the word of God faithfully. And he's saying, Timothy, you and the other leaders that you're going to entrust this message to, you need to make every effort to be diligent. That's this phrase, do your best in their teaching of God's word so that they can stand before God in integrity. Here at the church, whether it's me in the pulpit, Pastor Keith, or Sunday school teachers, whatever, we need to be able to say, here is my teaching God. I have done it with integrity. I have worked hard to, to communicate your truth with the expectation that we'll be approved because we are handling it rightly. 
And that's what Paul says, rightly handling the word of truth. This word, rightly handling, is actually to, to cut a straight path. And, and commentators kind of, there's a whole bunch of things that it could mean or allude to, and they're all similar concepts. And so maybe it's talking about uh, cutting stone, like a builder who cuts stone and lays it in a straight line. Uh, it could be talking about a farmer who plows a field, who looks across the field at a point and, and plows a straight line. It could also, most likely in my mind, be that it's talking about cutting a road, cutting a path through like a forest or a hill, and you're going straight through. MacArthur talks about how it's an illustration from Paul's work of tent making, where the fabric has to be cut straight. If it's not cut straight, then you're going to start warping it and twisting it to get it to, to fit right. So no, we're, we're to rightly divide, to cut straight the word. What's certain is that Paul is advocating for a careful and purposeful study and teaching of God's word as we are to present our teaching to God. So Stephen Cole, he gives this illustration to kind of, kind of frame these faithful leaders, these men who preach the gospel and how they are looking for the approval, not of men, but of their master. He says this, A young man once studied violin under a world-renowned master. When his big recital came, the crowd cheered after each number. But the young performer seemed dissatisfied. Even after the final number, despite the applause, the musician seemed unhappy. As he took his bows, he was watching an elderly man in the balcony. Finally, the elderly one smiled and nodded in approval. Immediately, the young man beamed with joy. He was not looking for the approval of the crowd. He was waiting for the approval of his master. And this is how Christians should be living, living for God's approval. But we be approved unto him as we use the Bible to grow in godliness. We ought to be working to be craftsmen who use, uses God's word of truth accurately and skillfully that results in godliness. And that's where primarily in view, Paul has in mind the teachers, the elders, the pastors of the church. But I think that this command does not only apply to pastors and missionaries, but it certainly can apply to every Christian, and it certainly can apply to those who teach. And those who teach may be broader than you think. Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, everyone involved in in a, a case of personal discipleship. It applies to parents who must teach their children. It applies to believers who want to win their friends and neighbors for Christ. As we teach the word of God, we need to handle it rightly. Cut it straight. So you know a church is healthy. They have faithful leaders when they preach the gospel, but also because they protect the gospel. Verse 16 again, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Irreverent babble is kind of a, a weird way of, I never would use that word, I didn't know what it meant exactly, and I think babble, I think baby talk. And I don't think that's what Paul was getting at. And if you dig into it a little bit, it's more than just nonsensical speech. 
And it's actually more, most likely more severe than quarreling over words and just endless debates. The idea is actually one that's closer to um, our idea of profane. Taking things which should be reserved from God and having no respect for it. In this context, especially means the teaching of the word of truth. is this disregarding the truths of God, profaning them. This is irreverent babble. And Paul says, avoid it, because it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This idea of leading, it kind of plays with the idea of cutting straight. Use the word of truth, cut straight path. Well, this idea of these false teachers and this irreverent babble, they're chopping forward, they're cutting forward, and they're either getting obstacles out of the way in to ungodliness instead of truth. And instead of cutting the word of truth correctly and leading to godliness, these false teachers are cutting forward into more and more spiritual darkness. And the more they talk, the farther away from holiness and towards the world and towards the things that are profane. This is a picture of irreverent babble and how it's leading people into more and more ungodliness. And he says even worse than that, it's contagious. Their talk will spread like gangrene, like a cancer, like the tissue starts to die. But unless it's properly treated, usually by being cut off, then it's going to be faithful or it's going to be fatal. Faithful leaders must guard against false teachings. But they also must protect against false teachers. He continues in verse 17, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. See, Paul addresses the people who are quarreling, endless debates, Paul addresses the irreverent babble, the tendency towards ungodliness and profane things. But then, he doesn't stop there. He also isn't afraid to call out by name the false teachers and call out their heresy by name here. Now, we don't know a lot about the heresy, and I would contend that it really doesn't matter. Likely, it's an over-realized eschatology where um, it was a growing trend in the Greco-Roman world that um, physical resurrection could not happen. God's not interested in anything physical. And so the resurrection is spiritual. And since um, it's already as a Christian, then this is all there is. And there's, they were denying the bodily resurrection of believers. That's likely what Paul is talking about, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and you are still in your sins. The resurrection of Christ, as a guarantee of our future bodily resurrection, was central to, God, to Paul's understanding and the correct understanding of the gospel. And these Two teachers specifically, Hymenaeus and Philetus, among others, were promoting this within the church. 
Now, we've already seen Hymenaeus actually in 1 Timothy. He had already been cut off. He'd hand, Paul had handed him over to Satan, so he had learned not to blaspheme. This idea of irreverent babble again. And apparently, he hasn't learned his lesson yet, and he's still trying to stir up controversy within the church. But Paul tells Timothy, you're going to have to stand strong against the false teachings and the false teachers. Because if you allow false teachers to continue to perpetuate, perpetuate uh, false teachings, now you see the, re- the result is the faith of some being upset. Literally, it means to be overturned. And so a healthy church will protect against false teachings and false teachers. And so it's at this moment that Timothy, and maybe you and me, if we were to stop right there, would kind of get discouraged. At one time, Hymenaeus, maybe Philetus, could have been leaders in the church. They were in the church. They 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 professed Christ. You're thinking, how is Timothy going to deal with all of this? How is he going to combat all of these things? There's false teachers. There's false teaching. Paul doesn't think he's getting out of jail. Timothy's going to have to find some other guys to keep this message going. People are abandoning the Christian faith left and right. Now you've got people stirring up even more problems. And so in the next section of Scripture here, I think what Paul is reminding Timothy, that listen, it's the same thing from verses 11 through 13, that God's still in control. The true church is marked by those who aren't carried away by false teaching. Instead, they're committed to his service. And so we said a healthy church is marked by faithful leaders who preach the gospel and protect the gospel. In the next few verses, we'll see that a healthy church is marked by genuine servants. Look with me at verses 19. Uh, Let's just start with verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The firm foundation here refers to the true people of God, the church. Paul says that the true people of God, the firm foundation, the building of God, it's sealed with two inscriptions, that actually give us insight into our salvation. The first inscription is, The Lord knows those who are His. And we see that genuine servants are sealed in Christ. It's telling us that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's sovereignly in control of the church. Salvation does not begin with man. It began with God. He planned it. He executed it. He chooses us in Christ before the foundations of the world, Paul says, Ephesians 1. James 1.18 gives us insight because he says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The same foundation that Paul is talking about here in this passage. So Paul says the church is sealed, the people of God are sealed, uh, with two, it's like a double-sided seal, if you would. Uh, the Lord knows who are His. God is at work. But also, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So God exercises sovereign control over the church, but every believer has the responsibility to turn away from sin. 
If you go back to Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. So we can be then assured that we belong to the Lord because we see him progressively working out our holiness in our daily lives. Now what's interesting about this kind of inscription, this seal, is Paul actually has in mind a story from Numbers chapter 16. Some of you remember, it's usually titled in your Bible, Korah's Rebellion. There's three leaders, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, 250 other false leaders, and they're challenging Moses and Aaron. And they're saying, hey, listen, everyone who's of Israel is holy. Why do we have to listen to you? We're going to do our own thing. We're good because we are called Israel. And if you know the story, God has the people separate And then he opens up the earth and Korah and all those who rebelled against God fell into the depths of the earth. And and that's where in this, the Lord knows those who are his is a reference from Numbers chapter 16, I believe it's verse 5, where Paul is saying ever since the beginning, God knows and controls and has discernment over who is genuinely his and who is not. But then a little later, in the midst of this scene, God tells Israel that they are to separate from these rebellious people. And so there's where we get this second inscription. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What it tells us is that our standing in Christ that we are chosen, that we are His, should also stir up the desire to be used by Christ. Which is why that genuine servants are not only sealed in Christ, but they are also willing vessels of Christ. And so Paul moves from this firm foundation, the church or the house of God, And then he continues and and shifts the analogy or metaphor to the vessels or the utensils within the house. And that's what verse 20 and 21 is about. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is a notoriously difficult passage to say this is exactly what this means. The house is God's people. Almost everyone's agreed. We're taking, we're going from God's firm foundation to God's house. Within the house, there are vessels. They're people, but who are the people and what are the vessels? There's two common thoughts. It's either talking about uh, the faithful and uh, faithful Christians and unfaithful Christians. Some are fit for good and honorable service. Some are fit for not so good service. It could be that. It could be talking about unbelievers and believers. Vessels of honor are those who are saved. And the un, uh, dishonorable vessels are those who are in the visible church. 
They present as Christians, but they really aren't. And so they have connection to the church, but they're not. And so there are some that are uh, honorable and some that are dishonorable. What I think is most likely is that it's somewhat of a mixture of the two. I think what's most likely in view is this idea of teachers within the church, because that's the core of everything that's being taught in this broader passage. That there are teachers within the church. Some of them are vessels for honor, and some of them are vessels for dishonor. But I would also say that while the teachings are in view, that is probably speaking of teachers who are genuinely Christians and teachers who are trying to associate with the church but are genuinely not believers. That's how I would phrase the two vessels and, and how they're used. There's two groups. There's vessels for God will use and there's vessels that God won't use is the big major point. And what we should understand that if we're going to be a genuine servant of Christ, that that means that God has a purpose for those in the church. Whether or not you're a teacher or not a teacher, God has a purpose for every utensil, every vessel in his church. Beyond that then, it means that every believer who's seeking to be a genuine servant should be prepared for that service. So what Paul is getting at in this extended kind of analogy or metaphor is that God is going to use his vessels, some for honorable uses and some for dishonorable uses. But the master of the house has one condition to use a vessel for honorable use, and that is that it's clean. That it's clean. That's the one condition. That's what the promise hinges on, that the vessel must be clean. And so what Paul says, and for us to think about, is that we are to clean or purify ourselves. He says, again, that therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. And if we are looking at marks of a healthy church and we're saying marks of a healthy church are genuine servants, then what we see is that every believer, everyone who is a genuine servant, should be prepared for service. The prerequisite for service, you must be clean. So what does it mean? In what sense am I supposed to be clean? I don't think it means we have to look around at everybody with suspicion. Are you a dirty vessel? Are you dirty? Are you unclean? Are you clean? Can I be around you? I don't want to... How far? What's the distance that I will get infected by your uncleanness? I don't think that's what's there in view. But I think if we stick with the theme that is predominant through this section of Scripture in the first nine verses of chapter 3, that we need to stay away from false teaching. We need to stay away from false teachers. And not only in physical locale, but that we're purifying our mind from falsehood, from anything that would profane, from anything that would distract, from anything that would cause quarrels. I'm going to avoid these things. And so my purity, the way that I cleanse myself, is through pure doctrine and pure character. And that's, I think, the point of this 
analogy of the house of God, that there's vessels, some clean, some un- unclean. God will only use clean vessels for honorable person. Uh, for honorable purposes, genuine servants should want to be used for honorable purposes, so then purify yourself. Purify your doctrine, purify your conduct and your character. So this makes sense as it flows into our last mark of a healthy church. A healthy church is marked by faithful, uh, by faithful leaders, is marked by genuine servants. They've been selected. They've been cleansed. And then lastly here, our last few verses, we find that a healthy church is marked by mature believers. A healthy church is marked by mature believers. Look at me at verse 22. We're going to skip over this phrase. We're going to come back to back to it in a second. So flee youthful passions. This is where I get mature from, but we're going to push it to the next thing. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A healthy church is marked by mature believers, and mature believers know what's important. Mature believer knows that character counts. Mature believers are going to pursue righteousness. They're going to pursue faith, love, and peace. We're to pursue um, righteousness. That we're pursuing God's character. That we're producing or searching or seeking after uh, godly attributes, qualities that are based on God's truth and character and holiness. That's, that's righteousness. We're going to pursue faith. We're going to pursue to be both faithful and we're to pursue the faith as we deepen our understanding and knowledge of the gospel. We're going to pursue love. Not maybe love how our society defines it, but love how the Bible describes it. Love that is self-sacrificial. Love that looks out for the good of others, even above yourself. Love is the hallmark of believers, Jesus says, and John says, and Paul says. So mature believers know that we are we ought to be pursuing love in all of our relationships. Then he says, pursue peace. There's a question whether the comma should be after peace or not. It seems some neighbor going to into that, those debates that don't matter. But I think it does matter because it's, do we just pursue peace? I don't think so, actually, because of what comes next and what we just saw with false leaders. I don't think there should be a comma. There's no commas. There's no punctuation, uh, really, in most of the original manuscripts. So it's pursue Peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Pursue peace with the brothers. Pursue peace with the believers. Not just some arbitrary peace out there. Pursue peace with the people of God. That's going to keep you from unnecessary quarrels. That's going to keep you from unnecessary debates. That's going to help you pursue love, righteousness, uh, character, and all these things. Pursue peace among the church. This is what mature believers do. So mature believers pursue holy living. And then, mature believers avoid needless quarrels. So we're going to take the first part of verse 
22. So flee youthful passions and stick it with verse 23. Having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. Now, it seems like we've already covered this before. And in some ways, we certainly have. But whenever I hear flee youthful passions, do you know what I think of? Teenagers, backs of cars and whatnot. That's most likely not in view here. That's just what happens when you've worked with teenagers for 15 years. You know what young, especially men, in the ages of 18 and 25, certainly not me, I'm past that now, struggle with? A hot temper, arguing too much, thinking that they know more than they do. Calvin said, understood it as the propensity of younger men to lose their tempers, to rush forward into a heated argument with more confidence and rashness than men of a riper age do. Impatience, intolerance, love of argument, self-assertion, partiality, like these are hallmarks of young guys. Timothy is a relatively young guy, and actually he's probably closer, was closer to my age when Paul writes this. And he's saying, Timothy, you can't go there. We're looking for a healthy church, and a healthy church is going to develop and be full of mature Christians. And so, hold back when you want to go fight and debate and argue and get mad and and show your temper, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And remember what I just told you about quarrels. So mature believers always avoid needless quarrels. If you want to know, William Barclays, he gives us kind of a test of whether or not it was a quarrel worth having or if you handle it properly. He says this, here then is the test. If at the end of our talk, we are closer to one another and God, then all is well. But if we have erected barriers between one another and have left God more distant, then all is not well. The aim of all Christian discussion and of all Christian action is to bring a man nearer to his fellows and to God. I think we need to take that, print that, screenshot that, and put it on every social media feed, every person's computer before they log on, every person's manuscript before they put it up, every Sunday school class before you walk in, as you're ready to come in and debate and argue. And sometimes it's necessary to contend for the truth. But as we talk and as we contend for the truth, we also should keep this in mind. Have we grown closer to God through the conflict? Can we say that we acted with character and integrity? Mature believers pursue holy living. They avoid needless quarrels. And then lastly, mature believers offer wise counsel. Verse 24 and 25. I think I just left off 26. I will keep it. All right, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. What does this have to do with wise counsel? Because this is the context. When you're at church, 
You're going to be rubbing shoulders with people, and hopefully you're growing together, and hopefully you're, you're talking through things, and you're learning, and you're diving deep, and, and, and there's going to be times where questions come up. There's going to be times where you don't understand, or, or, or you disagree, and so Paul says, okay, that's okay, but there's a way to handle that. We handle that not by being quarrelsome, but by being kind. This is actually being gentle to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil. So even when someone comes and attacks you, mature believer isn't just going to respond rashly. They're going to take it in stride. They're going to patiently endure it. And then they're going to correct his opponents with gentleness or meekness. This gives you the picture of a mature Christian, one who isn't threatened when someone comes and says, well, I think this and you're wrong. Whoa. Why don't we sit down and, and have a conversation? The aim of correction, Paul is saying, is always remedial. It's never punitive. Especially when we're talking about people within the church. And because we're working to hopefully restore them, to bring them into truth, to help guide younger, less mature believers perhaps into the truth, we do that by being patient and calm and gentle. This is how the church remains healthy through mature believers offering wise counsel. We know this is true because of the love the last verse. In verse twenty six. So you correct his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do their will, to do his will. Listen, the point of this, Paul says, is remember the advancement of the gospel is at stake in all of these things. And the church is this vehicle that helps the gospel go. And so we have to have a healthy church so that even when there are false teachers among us and even when there are people who maybe haven't believed yet, that as we interact with each other, as we contend for the truth and, and decide what is important and what's not, we're saying that we have the opportunity to bring people into the real household of God. We're allowing people to come into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. That's the goal of all of this. But we must have a healthy church. Only healthy churches, just like only clean vessels, God will use for an for honorable purposes. So we must be characterized by faithful leaders, genuine servants, mature believers. Not everyone is at the same place in their maturity, in their walk with Christ. Not everyone has the same gifts. Not everyone will have the same roles. But our desire should be to be a part of what makes our church healthy so that we can see the gospel advance around us. We can work backwards up through the list. Our first desire should be to become mature. What's my role in the church, a healthy church? My desire is to be growing in my maturity. As we grow in a maturity, we should soon realize that this is going to include me genuinely Serving. And as I genuinely serve, some will find that their role and place in the church 
is to become a faithful leader. It takes everyone. Everyone is a part. Everyone has a role. Just because you may not be here on the pulpit on Sunday morning does not mean that you don't have an obligation to dig into this text to see where you might grow because you, a church is, is never greater than its members. We should all strive together to become the healthy church that God has intended. Let's pray. We're thankful that this is really not about us, this is about you, your gospel, that you have empowered us, that you have equipped us, that you have given us the privilege of walking and serving you. Lord, I pray that you would help us think through what our role in our church is. I thank you for the Chapel of the Lake as we look to celebrate 50 years of ministry uh, next week. We understand that you're behind it all, that we're celebrating your faithfulness to our church. We're also thankful for the people, the men and the women who have contributed to make this place a healthy church, a place that you, we have continued to, to see you work year after year after year. Lord, I pray that you continue to help us be a healthy church, that you would continue to raise up faithful leaders, genuine servants, and mature believers so that we will continue to see the gospel advance around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.